Psalm 2, if you haven't already found it, can be found on page 769 of the Bibles, which are up the back if anybody needs one. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Morning. Our second reading is uh, Romans 1, uh, verses 1 to 17, and that's found on page 1600 in our church Bibles. So Romans 1, verses 1 to 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his early life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I may have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles." I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. 
That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to ponder God's word. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Today we're starting a significant Bible reading project, diving into the book of Romans. Romans is a precious book, a powerful book. There we go, there we go. It's a book that had a big influence over the centuries. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, said, it is worthy not only that every Christian should know Romans word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. There's a little project for 2024 for you. John Calvin, the great theologian of the same century, said, if we have gained a true understanding of Romans, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. John Stott, one of the great preachers of the 20th century, described Romans as the fullest, plainest and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. Here is unfolded the good news of freedom, freedom from the wrath of God, freedom from alienation into reconciliation, freedom from the condemnation of God's law, freedom from our own ego, freedom from the fear of death, freedom one day from the decay of the groaning creation into the glorious liberty of God's children, and meanwhile, freedom from ethnic conflict in the family of God, and freedom to give ourselves to the loving service of God and others. In the 21st century, The famous senior minister, Anton Marquez, also had his life changed by Romans. This book is juicy and it's wonderful and I'm looking forward to us feasting on it this term and being amazed by God's grace. But as as we tuck into this feast, there's just one danger we need to be aware of. You might be familiar with light bulb jokes. Uh, How many whatevers does it take to change a light bulb? I'm quite partial to musician jokes. Uh, And I've got a musical light bulb joke for you today. Ready? How many sopranos does it take to change a light bulb? Just one. She stands still with the bulb and the world revolves around her. (laughs) Sorry to any singers in the room, there is a stereotype at work there. But this joke illustrates the danger that we can face when we're reading Romans or any other New Testament letter. We can dive into this letter assuming that it's all about me. If we fall into this trap, then whenever this document says you or we, we'll assume that it's talking about us sitting in North Epping in 2024. Now, Romans and the whole Bible does have a great relevance for us. It will change your life. But it didn't just drop down out of the sky this morning. It's a letter written in about AD 59. It's a letter written by a particular person 
to some particular people in a particular place in response to some particular circumstances. It's not a big letter that just says, oh, here's the gospel, FYI, in case you're interested. It's got a context. And so to handle Romans properly, we need to remember that we are reading someone else's mail. And the people write letters for a reason. And so as we get started this morning, let's do some work to understand the scene. Please open up Romans chapter 1 and let's have a look at it together. In verse 1, the writer introduces himself. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Romans wasn't dropped down out of the sky, but neither is it just one guy's opinion, one opinion amongst many. This is a letter written by Paul the Apostle. Apostle means authorised messenger. This guy Paul, previously a hater of Christians has been confronted by the resurrected Jesus and appointed as one of his official representatives with a message to spread. Look at verse 2 where we get a rich and a compact description of this message. It's the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This message wasn't made up from scratch in Paul's day. It was promised beforehand in what we now call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. The first two-thirds of our Bible is the backstory to Jesus. The story of the Lord God forming the nation of ancient Israel to be his holy people. The story where Israel got themselves into terrible trouble and God promised them a rescuer, a leader who would save them, a Messiah or a Christ. This gospel was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3 tells us this gospel message is all about God's Son. This person has a human lineage. He is descended from the royal line of King David, the greatest king of ancient Israel. But something very special has happened. He's not just one more instalment in that royal line. Something very special has happened. He has been raised from the dead. His own people crucified him, can you believe? But God vindicated him, raising him from death, giving him authority, not just as king of Israel, but all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the king that Psalm 2 talked about, who's been installed by God and given rule over every nation. Who is this promised king? At the end of verse 4, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the gospel message that Paul bears. And do you notice, it's not about you. At the centre of this message is not what God will do for you, but what God has done for Jesus. Raising him up as the king of everything. And the guy writing this letter has been appointed by Jesus to spread this news. The immediate goal of spreading the message is in verse 5. Paul's been made an apostle to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. That's the immediate goal, the Gentiles coming to obedient faith. But Paul doesn't stop there because at the end of the day, it's not for the sake of the Gentiles he's doing it. 
the ultimate objective is at the end of verse 5, for his name's sake. It's the glory of Jesus. Jesus getting the recognition and the honour that he deserves. That is the ultimate goal of all gospel preaching. But what Paul was doing here is actually very controversial at the time. Paul had been a Pharisee, a great lover of the Jewish law. Now he's called to become an apostle to the Gentiles. He's going around preaching to Gentiles, but he's not telling them, come and be obedient to the Jewish law with us. He's saying, come and put your trust in Jesus, the Messiah. That is all that really matters. Trust in Jesus, the Messiah. That's all that really matters. His message was gaining traction. Verse 6 makes it clear that the Christians he's writing to in Rome are mostly Gentiles. In verse 7, he describes these Gentiles as loved by God and called to be his holy people. For Paul's Jewish friends and family, even the Christian ones, that was concerning, if not scandalous and shameful. They would have been saying, the Lord made all these special promises to Israel as his holy people, Are you now saying that all of that counts for nothing? Is God abandoning these promises that he made to his people? As we read on in Romans, this theme runs all the way through. It seems like actually there was conflict within the Christian community in Rome between Gentile law-free Christians and Jewish law-keeping Christians, with both groups inclined to look down on the other. Even inside the church, some were saying that Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was shameful. Now, you and I know what it is to be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, don't we? A couple of decades ago, people would tend to say that the message of Christianity was irrelevant or boring or useless. These days, more and more voices are claiming that the message of Christianity is immoral, shameful, harmful. A few years ago, I was checking out the Facebook page of a group that is working to abolish school scripture as it currently stands in New South Wales. They posted a video with a comment, look at the harmful, destructive message that is being taught in SRE. Uh, It was a video of a guy explaining his lesson plan to other teachers. And before I watched this video, I thought, ah, they've probably dug up some terrible fundamentalist, some fire and brimstone guy, and they're making out like all scriptures the teachers are like that. That's what I expected. But when I watched this video, I found it was an entirely unremarkable lesson about how everyone is guilty of sin and Jesus can take our sin away. That's all it was. In our context, where the most reasonable middle-of-the-road presentation of the Christian message can be labelled as harmful and shameful, it's tempting for us to go, hmm, maybe I should just keep out of the firing line, keep my head down and my mouth shut. Paul was certainly under fire for what he was teaching about Jesus. But come down with me to verse 16. Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel. He says the gospel is nothing to be ashamed of because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew, then the Gentile. 
He's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Now, people have interpreted that phrase, the righteousness of God, in a whole lot of ways. Uh, For me, I'm pretty convinced that what he's talking about here is the fact that God does what is right. God is upright. God treats people fairly. Paul's going to build that argument over the next few chapters of Romans. Paul is confident that when you understand his gospel properly, you'll be forced to admit that God does what is right. And I hope that as we study Romans, we'll gain a renewed confidence that God does what is right and be able to defend it and rejoice in it. The objections that we encounter today are probably different to the objections that Paul was encountering in his time. But I expect that from Paul's letter, we'll get some fuel to help us to be unashamed of the gospel, confident that it reveals the fairness of God. Now, in the middle of today's passage, Paul talks about why he wants to come and visit Rome. There's a few reasons for this desire. Uh, In verse 11, he says he wants to come and encourage the Roman Christians and to be encouraged by them. Later in the letter, he explains how he's hoping that his readers will support him in his planned ministry trip to Spain. But I want to focus in on the end of verse 13. The end of verse 13, have a look at this. He says he planned to come to Rome in order to have a harvest among you, just as I have among the other Gentiles. He wants to do this because, he says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, I think at this point he's talking about having a harvest amongst the population of Rome in general, rather than the Roman Christians in particular. Paul has been appointed to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and Rome is the capital of the Gentile world, and so he wants to come there and bring some more Gentiles to the obedience of faith. Paul says he is obligated. It's the same word that can be used for having a debt, owing some money, which is a little bit strange. Normally when we think of a debt, we think of like, Lee has lent me some money, and so I'm in debt to him to pay it back to him, right? But that doesn't fit with what Paul's talking about here. But there's another way to be in debt. If Lee gives me some money and says, that's a welcome back present for Anton, cash gift, then until I pass that money on to Anton, I am in debt to Anton. I haven't borrowed anything from him, but there's something that I owe to him. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Jesus has given him the gospel message. But it's not just for him to hang on to and enjoy for himself. It's to be passed on to others. That's why Jesus revealed himself to Paul in the first place. The gospel is for sharing. Now, let me acknowledge here that Paul was a special case. He had direct orders from Jesus to play a particular role, to travel around as a frontline missionary, and he was evidently given gifts and abilities to make that possible. We're not all called to do what Paul did. We're not all apostles. But that broader principle applies to us. The gospel is for sharing. 
The gospel we've been given is not just for our own benefit. We owe it to others to share it with them for the benefit of those who hear, but more so for the glory of Jesus. Sharing the gospel is a team effort. And the kind of role it will play will vary from person to person. There are some Christians who are able to put flyers in a litter box, set up chairs for an event, pray that people will come. And that really is all they're able to do. That's their contribution to the team. And that's great. Some Christians are able to go out and talk about Jesus to strangers on the street really effectively and fruitfully for hours at a time. And I praise God for people like that. I'm not one of them. I'm going to say that pretty much all of us here fall between those two extremes. For most of us here, while we're not specially gifted evangelists, there is some kind of speaking role for us to play in the sharing of the gospel. Let's think about a few aspects of that. Pretty much all of us here are able to say that we stand with Jesus, just to drop a sentence into a conversation to show where our loyalties lie. Here are a few examples I cooked up. Sunday. Ah, well, I'm pretty committed to my church on Sunday mornings. What are my life goals? Uh, I guess my biggest goal is to follow Jesus. What do I want for my kids? I guess what I want most for them is to follow Jesus. In a workplace conversation, you might say, yeah, look, I know I could get away with cutting this corner, but in my life I'm aiming to please God, not just to stay out of trouble. In the playground, we might say, yeah, I know that person is annoying, but God's treated me better than I deserve, so I'm going to try and cut them some slack. The conversation might not go any further than that sentence, but you've made your allegiance known. There's an Australian writer called Sam Chan who's got some good books on this topic. I read a bit of his stuff this week. One interesting idea he talks about is to working, working to mix our circles of Christian friends and non-Christian friends. If we can work to combine those circles, make them overlap, it's useful. Because if you're the only Christian that somebody knows, they can easily write off your beliefs as just idiosyncratic nonsense. But if they know half a dozen people who all take Jesus seriously, then the gospel message becomes a lot more plausible, doesn't it? Chan also talks about being able to tell the story of how God makes a difference in your life. If someone says to you, what made you want to be a Christian? Be ready with something meaningful to say. Not your whole life story, not a theological textbook, but just something to say about how following Jesus gives you something you wouldn't otherwise have. Let me acknowledge that I have plenty of room to grow in this area. And so I'm really glad that as a church we're doing the Ripple Effect program this year so that all kinds of people can encounter Jesus through us. Uh, the Ripple Effect isn't just a one-off training session. It's a, an ongoing program for growing the gospel-sharing culture of our church. It includes growing our leadership in this area, and it includes working out how each of us plays our part with our different gifts. So I really want to urge you, do go ahead and block out Sunday the 3rd of March as we kick this off. 
Like Paul, our church has been entrusted with the gospel to share it with others for the glory of Jesus. If you're at work and your boss gives you a can of paint and a paintbrush and says that's to paint the company logo on the outside of the building, it's no good if instead you take that paint home and use it to spruce up your bedroom. See what I mean? We've been given the gospel for sharing for the glory of Jesus. And so I'm excited that we are tucking into this rich feast in the book of Romans. It's a book which unpacks the rich implications of the gospel of God regarding his son Jesus. It's a book that proves God's righteousness and teaches us to be unashamed of the gospel. And in that confidence, we can be people who share the gospel freely amongst all kinds of people for the glory of Jesus. How about we pray? Father God, we thank you for being the Father who gives us good gifts. You richly bless us with your Son, Jesus, and you richly bless us with the Scriptures that unpack for us all that he's done for us. We ask that you continue to feed us as we feast in Romans. Help us to be people who are unashamed of your gospel. Help us to be people who confidently share it with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.